For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, it's our Dell Show. So glad you're with us. We really appreciate you joining us. It's a Thursday. It's the 17th of February. The year of our Lord 2022 continues to roll on, and we're right here with it. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time, as we try to turn down some of the noise in the news cycle involving culture and politics, get to the information we need. Uh, we're going to do that today on a couple of different stories. Uh, there's some Writing out there, we've talked about on the program before, about what is open, what isn't open, why isn't part of the federal government open back up yet, because they still have restricted services. We'll talk about that issue. We're going to end the show. We always try to do a lighter note, a cool little story of a woman who found uh, her ancestor and her father's uh, segregated one-room schoolhouse out in the woods in Virginia. Cool little story. We'll follow up on that. On the program today, our guest, Andrew Egger. Uh, two wrongs don't make a right, but we're going to hope two Andrews make for good content. He covered the same story we did last week. You remember we talked about crack pipes and harm reduction and how that story exploded on social media. He agrees with me. It is an interesting microcosm of how we not only cover stories about drug use, but how the media covers itself and also dovetails into what we've been talking about, the Biden administration and optics. Plus, underneath all the caterwauling about the crack pipes, Nobody's talking about the issue at hand, drug addiction and harm reduction. We're going to talk to Andrew Agger of The Dispatch and his writing on the subject. He joins the program as our guest today. Uh, also, P.J. O'Rourke, a well-known writer, satirist, columnist, uh, has written many great books, including one of my personal favorites, Parliament of Whores, which explains politics better than anything else. Uh, our friend Michael Siegel has written a memoriam to him. We will cover that in a minute. But first, uh, there's a shocking issue coming out of San Francisco. Our friend M. Carpenter, who's on this program frequently, she's my colleague at Ordinary-Times.com. And in her Wednesday Ritz feature that she writes every week, she took to task a story that is breaking out of uh, San Francisco. I'm going to read it as she wrote it because she wrote it better than I can. It's an outrageous story. It's something that should upset you, but it's one of those things that everybody knows keeps happening, but nobody seems to really want to do anything about it. And we're going to cover it now. Uh, M. Carpenter from Ordinary-Times.com. Why didn't they report it, says the skeptics, when a person is finally brave enough to disclose they were raped sometimes years later? And there's a very long list of whys. Because they may not be believed, because they fear retaliation, because they are scared to face their rapist, because they can't stand the thought of being touched and intimately examined after what their bodies have gone through, because they don't want to go through the rigors of a trial, because they don't, because they want to forget it and move on. Because their DNA may be put in a database and used to charge them with crime someday. What? Yes, this is apparently a thing that is happening in San Francisco and who knows where else. San Francisco District Attorney said Monday that police used a database with DNA collection from victims of rape and sexual assault to connect some of them to crimes. 
District Attorney Chase Bowden said the San Francisco Police Department Crime Lab had been using the database to, quote, attempt to subsequently incriminate victims of rape and sexual assault, a practice he called legally and ethnically wrong. To be transparent, as a person with an interest in true crime, watching the perpetrators of decades-old murders fall like dominoes at the hand of DNA technology is very satisfying. I've written about this multiple times here at Ordinary Times. This is linked, by the way. You can go through and read it all. I recommend it. And fully admit that I love to imagine the most heinous perpetrators, elderly now and long having thought they got away with it, sitting in their home, shaking in fear, awaiting the knock at the door. Just this week, Pennsylvania State Police announced they solved the murder of a 10-year-old Marissa Chevarella, raped and strangled nearly 60 years ago. The perpetrator died over 40 years ago and unfortunately won't get this earthly justice. But Marissa's surviving siblings take some solace in knowing the truth. However, the use of DNA comes controversially and with ethical questions, especially when the criminals themselves have not volunteered a sample to the database used by law enforcement, such when familial DNA is used, as with the Chivarella case and more famously the Golden State Killer case. Many questions over the constitutionality and the real privacy concerns raised, while others think it is fair game and worth the cost if it identifies society's monsters. No matter where you fall in that debate, this practice by police in San Francisco should anger you. Maybe you think, nah, it's fine, then just don't do crimes, but consider that the mere presence of one's DNA at a crime scene is not definitive proof of culpability. You leave pieces of yourself everywhere you go. Do you want to go to jail for burglary because your hair was found at a place you visited that was subsequently burgled? Note that not every crime in which DNA is used is as serious as murder or rape. The woman in San Francisco story was implicated in a property crime. If you really want rapists off the streets, you should want to make reporting their crimes a victim-friendly process. It is difficult to ease the psychological trauma the process will have on a victim, no matter how sensitive the system may try to be. But assuring them that their cooperation will not later result in their own prosecution seems like a fair concession. Federal law already prohibits in- entering victim data into CODIS. Uh, that's a database for using to identify criminal suspects in criminal cases. But local jurisdictions like San Francisco can keep their own databases and to which the federal law does not apply. Nothing stops them from entering any and all DNA they obtain into their system, quote, just in case. Like so many other issues, this one must be tackled at a local level. That's Tim Carpenter writing at Ordinary-Times.com. There's more to her Wednesday Ritz feature. I hope you seek it out. The lesson here, as always, is criminal justice system is jacked up because we don't pay enough attention to it. This is something that needs public pressure and it needs public attention. Your DNA is a part of you. The privacy concerns should be real. And just because you've committed a crime or you're a criminal doesn't mean you still don't have rights. These are things that, like M said, need to be developed at the local level. Do you even know what your local level laws in your state, in your municipality or county, and the federal laws involving things like this? We talk about it before, and we'll talk about it more. Everybody wants to think criminals are some people over there and that you are among the righteous if you've never committed a crime. But the fact is, if you go through the statutes and law by letter law, all of us have broken some statutes somewhere. And some folks like our friend Don Zico, who's a public defender, postulates that almost all of us have probably committed a felony somewhere along the lines. We're not just talking murders. There's obscene and unique laws on the books that we don't even know about we may be breaking. Imagine if they have your DNA to link you to something you didn't even know you did wrong. And now you're at the mercy of a system that has been very unmerciful to many others. You'd feel different if it was happening to you. So pretend like it was happening to you ahead of time, find out what your local laws are, and advocate with your prosecutors and your local elected officials 
to make sure those laws are equitable to everybody. It's your business to get ahead of this now. Eventually, there'll be some outrageous case come along that everybody will pay attention to, and they'll wonder, how did this happen? And I'll refer you back to times like this, where we're telling you, this is how it happens. We can prevent it, but we probably won't, but we should. More Heard Tell right after this. Welcome back to Heard Tell. Uh, P.J. O'Rourke died. A well-known writer, uh, satirist, a lot of people called him, although he's a little more contemplative than that. Extremely talented writer, very, very funny. He wrote from the right-hand side of the spectrum, but he kind of broke through a lot of different barriers. He was a self-proclaimed long-haired hippie at one point, uh, even though he wrote from a conservative point of view a lot of the times. His book, uh, Parliament of Whores, is one of the best treaties ever written on politics. I suggest you go read it. It's also uproariously funny. Uh, Our own Michael Siegel, who's on this program frequently, did some really good writing about a really good writer uh, memorializing P.J. O'Rourke. And I'm going to read an excerpt from what he wrote in Ordinary Dash Time. Uh, The thing I would learn about P.J. O'Rourke, though, that he wasn't just funny. He was insightful in Parliament of Whores. He mocked the government for doing a multi-million dollar study to prove that sudden acceleration incidences, that's in quotes, were actually people accidentally stepping on the accelerator, thinking it was a break. But then he interviewed people at the NTHSA and realized that they had to do the study because no one would believe them without a multi-million dollar study. In his book, Eat the Rich, he journeyed to different countries to see how different economic systems worked and how came up with a few things, freedom of speech, property rights, and rule of law, for example, that were the critical differences between functional and dysfunctional economies. In Holidays in Hell, another of his famous books, he talked about the Philippine gorillas shooting at each other over tiny disputes while a water pump that could leave their crushing poverty went unrepaired. His response to 9-11 was to want the Muslim world to become like the West, so wealthy and prosperous that they didn't have time to be terrorists. He pointed out that while wealth doesn't solve all our problems, it allows us to choose the problems that we have. He was compassionate about poverty, war, and suffering enraged him, but smart enough to see that things that thinking good thoughts and throwing money at government won't necessarily solve those problems. And he knew how lucky he was to live a comfortable life by writing for a living. And he felt that all that was standing in the way of everyone having that privilege was the stupidity, arrogance, and greed of politicians. He wrote a short treatise on the wealth of nations that explained the concept even better than Smith did. What I would say about P.J. O'Rourke really was a skeptic. He was suspicious of power and those who sought to weld it, no matter what their ideology. He was skeptical of people who claimed to have all the answers, no matter who they were. He mocked those who took themselves too seriously and took the air out of dictator wannabes. He knew what humans are often no damn good, but usually are mostly okay. But he respected honest people who disagreed with him. And he realized that politics, for all its silliness and corruption and condescension, was a better way of dealing with our issues than any other way. I met him once in Austin. He spoke for an hour about politics and the world. He then took questions for an hour, and I'll never, I'll always remember his answer to mine. I asked him how the world had changed since the end of the Cold War. He replied that when the Soviet Union fell, two-thirds of the world's civil wars ended. I spoke to him while he signed my book, and I'm sure I sounded stupid, but he was charming and had an unmistakable twinkle in his eyes. As you can probably tell, P.G. O'Rourke's vision of politics heavily influenced my vision of politics. His style of writing influenced my style of writing. And today, while the news circulated, I saw libertarians, conservatives, and liberals all citing his work and quoting his best lines. That, as much as anything, shows the broad influence he had. P.J. O'Rourke died 
He was born 1947 and died this week. More Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell, Andrew Donaldson. Thanks for joining us. You know, one thing we try really hard on this program to do is we don't just go drive buying stories. Uh, we touch back in on them. Sometimes we take a day or two to get into them before we touch on them at all. We're going to do that today. Remember our crack pipe story we talked about? The free beacon, the Biden administration, social media, and conservative media freakouts. Well, we've got somebody who also wrote about it, did a lot better job writing about it than I did, so reached out. And here he is, uh, our buddy Andrew Eager. He's a writer over at the dispatch uh, among other places how are you doing my friend hey thanks for having me on i'm doing great how are you thrilled to see you uh new father that's still finding his way too so congratulations even though it's been a couple months i love the baby pictures that's good content on our twitter feeds appreciate oh thanks thanks yeah 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 it's uh, among the most harmless uh sorts of twitter content people don't tend to get as mad at you over the baby pictures although it's been known to happen um yeah no it's uh it's uh, she's she's four months old yesterday and uh, uh learning to sleep which is cool uh, at long last. And, uh, and yeah, things are going pretty well. Yeah. That, and that's why we do the food on my Twitter feed all the time too. And I've got uh, 14 through 23. If you ever want to change up for a couple of days, I'd be happy to take the baby and <laughs> trade. No worries, buddy. All right. Yeah, subject yeah. at hands though. Last week, uh, we had this story, Washington free beacon started with it. It kind of exploded from there before we get into the details though, just big picture. Uh, the way you titled your article in the dispatch, I think you agree with me. This is kind of a neat little microcosm of not just stories, but how we cover stories and how people react to how we cover stories, isn't it? Yeah, well, I, I mean, absolutely, because the you know at, at at bottom, what this is is a controversy over uh, over a little known uh, health and human services grant um, that the Free Beacon first stumbled on thirty million dollars for for various programs, um, including. Uh, what uh, what the Free Beacon characterized and with accuracy as these these safe smoking kits um, that there were going to be grants to fund these programs that other states, other cities, other you know community organizations within various states and cities were already running, basically in order to provide, in the interest of public health, less dangerous forms of paraphernalia for for users of various illegal drugs. Um, the, the, the thinking being that, you know, if we're going to have people in these communities using illegal drugs, then at the very least, we can blunt the public health impact of that by, by making sure that the paraphernalia that they're using is not, is not also, you know, that the drugs are not, not good for their health, but at least the, the kind of instruments they're using to, to get the fix are not additionally presenting their own health problems. And that's the, that's, you know, the, the, the thinking behind these programs as the thinking behind this grant, which was, like I say, a portion of a $30 million grant. But very quickly, almost immediately, in fact, the conversation stops being, after the Free Beacon reports this, about the grant itself and becomes this kind of meta meta media story about the coverage, right? Where it's it's very quickly uh, the HH, or, you know, a lot of Republicans rush to pick up the story um, because they, 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 Say it reflects b- badly on the Biden administration. It seems to, you know, indicate perspective on uh, illegal drugs on the part of the administration that is that's more tolerant toward the use of them. Um, that that even you know some argue encourages the use of them by, you know, making a you know licit pipeline to this this paraphernalia and stuff. Some of the claims get blown out of proportion as they often do when when things go viral and and people are asserting like a more intense version of the thing than than the Free Beacon ever reported. And then there's the backlash to the backlash. 
of HHS kind of rushing to the story and saying, no, 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 the Free Beacon blew this out of proportion. The Free Beacon actually um, mischaracterized what we said in some ways, but what we said to them about this program. And then, you know, that becomes kind of the, the conversation everybody's having is kind of who was too mean to whom, rather than kind of the merits of the, well, not, not even just the merits, but the facts of the program itself, and then the merits of, of that program. Uh, it just becomes yet another story about, you know, who has what biases in the media, which is the, which is the conversation everybody always wants to have anyway, because that's the conversation that is fun to have and is easy to weigh in on um, without really getting up to speed on what the precipitating issue was in the first place. Yeah. And the precipitating issue here, I'm curious how this even got out though, because this is a pretty run of the mill 75 page grant. The Free Beacon to their credit did what I always want you to do. They linked the actual document. So credit to them for that. This is a pretty standard. If you've ever read a grant, this is a 75 page grant. Safe Smoking Kit appears exactly once, and it appears in a list of 12 other items under the heading of such as, as in these municipalities and state level programs can pick from this list one of these things to do. Somebody either did a really huge deep dive here or some source really wanted this to get out. Do you have any idea which one of those it was? Well, I'm actually not not sure. I did talk to the Free Beacon reporter who who broke the original story in, in the course of reporting my piece, which again, you know, like, like I just said, mine was kind of participating more in the in the meta narrative. Uh, he he was the one who'd done the legwork of, of going and finding this stuff and and you know watched the relevant webinar about the people putting the grant together. Uh, he he didn't tell me whether he got a particular tip to look or whether he's just constantly diving in and out of these grants. In my experience, it's usually the it's usually the former. I mean, it's you know some interested party who is unhappy with, you know, with the way a certain program is going, uh, is say, you know, uh, if you're interested in looking under some rocks, here's a rock for you to look under. And then, you know, you get to the 70 page, 75 page document and there it is. And you, you know, do the reporting from there. But yeah, so it, it is, I mean, it is in terms of the whole program, like, 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 like you say, one very small kind of subset of the thing, but that's how, I mean, that's how these things work, right? I mean, these, it's always in the, the case in these, in these stories of, of kind of big federal disbursements that basically it is just kind of a, a laundry list of things that are, that are being formulated. And so the interesting conversation is, it, it doesn't necessarily tell you much that it is just a, a small subset because the interesting conversation we had is, well, there, there is a whole kind of argument that this, that this grant is, dipping into and pulling out of. Um, there's this whole safe smoking harm reduction uh, movement in terms of public policy uh, that that this is sort of the first uh, real federal endorsement of, of of its kind. And so it's and so, you know, setting aside the fact that, yeah, on, on, on the merits, it's not it's not hugely um, it's not an earth shaking change. It's not like it's going to change kind of the uh, or, or revolutionize the federal approach to drug policy overnight. It still is kind of this interesting on ramp to talk about, you know, how how we view uh, drug policy and and and, you know, how the what, what what the federal government's role is in trying to mitigate these harms, given the fact that at, at least at the federal level, it's it's there really has been no movement in terms of the law away from all that stuff's just illegal. And if you have it, it's a crime, you know? Yeah. I'm talking to Andrew Eager from the dispatch about this crack pipe story. Let's just start with crack pipe because part of the problem here is nomenclature, because that is a very loaded term. Obviously it immediately brings up connotations in everybody's minds, but part of the problem, and you touched on this when you wrote about it, and I thought it was an excellent example is if you really dig into it, like you said, this is federal policy wading into something that's kind of been batted around for a long time. Harm reduction isn't a new concept. There's a nomenclature problem here because while drug laws are pretty black and white, when it comes to drug paraphernalia, which is what we're talking about when you get into harm reduction, what can you give them, what can't you give you? There's just some good old-fashioned ambiguity in law and ambiguity in policy at work here where the government really hasn't specified what is and isn't drug paraphernalia here. 
Right, right. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's almost, you know, the, the, the classic definition of pornography thing, you know, when you see it, I mean, that, that, that's kind of enshrined in, in federal practice, if not the law itself. I mean, there's, I, I was reading some DOJ documents in, in the course of reporting this piece um, that was basically just kind of like a, a quick crash course in, in how do you identify paraphernalia? And it's like, well, you kind of have to, you kind of have to fall, go by your gut. Like, you know, what's the, uh, if, if, if you have a glass pipe that's being sold. So let's, let's talk specifically about, you know, a crack pipe. Well, there isn't, isn't any one product that, that is a crack pipe, right? I mean, it's people, people smoke crack with all kinds of things, improvised pipes. Usually when we talk crack pipe, we're talking a, a glass pipe of the sort that, that isn't illegal to own in and of itself, unless it, it's already been associated with drug use. So for instance, you could walk into a smoke shops around the country and you might see, I mean, a lot of places won't sell them because they're, I mean, nobody smokes tobacco out of a glass pipe. Um, usually they are associated with, with illegal drug use, but you could, you could smoke tobacco out of a glass pipe. It wouldn't be a very fun experience, but, but you know, the, the, the product itself is not, is not a uh, criminal to own or sell until it's been used to smoke crack. And at that point, once it has been used to smoke crack, it is then illegal paraphernalia. Uh, and, and if you can demonstrate that, you know, if, if a person is busted in possession of crack and with one of these pipes, they will probably also, you know, have the, have the paraphernalia, you know, tacked on because at that point, because of the context in which it's being used, uh, it's, it's known to be paraphernalia, but that's kind of the, the, the weird gray area in which, in which a lot of these things operate is that paraphernalia, the possession, uh, or actually I, I can't even say possession, the sale of, uh, or transport of, of drug paraphernalia is banned at the federal level. And, and, and the definition, the federal definition for that is extremely broad. It's basically just anything you use uh, that helps you get drugs in you is paraphernalia. But there is an exception to the federal law, which is that uh, a federal, state, or local law specifically permits a person to have, uh, to, you know, be in possession of these things, then the federal doesn't apply. So that's, uh, that's kind of one big carve out that would permit such a, such a program as this to move forward. Then when you go down to kind of the state and the local level, it's just a, it's just a huge patchwork. Almost all states or the, the majority of states do have their own prohibitions on possession of paraphernalia. They, they can prohibit uh, possession because their states. The weird thing about federal drug policy is that it is usually about uh, sale and transport because of interstate commerce uh, related reasons. But so most states prohibit uh, possession of paraphernalia. Some states carve out from their definition of paraphernalia syringes in particular, um, which again has to do with the, this harm reduction stuff that we've been talking about. A lot of states actually have these syringe services programs, they're called, where, uh, you know, where, where they, they permit communities to stand up these uh, these programs where users can come and turn in uh, used syringes and get clean ones in the in the hope of preventing the spread of, of bloodborne diseases like HIV. And then a couple of states and a couple of localities go farther than that and have specifically ex exempted from their definitions of paraphernalia pipes as well. So this, and, and this is then the safe smoking aspect of these harm reduction policy programs is that, uh, well, if we think that uh, allowing users to make sure they at least have clean syringes and aren't, aren't passing them amongst each other and we're uh, limiting uh, the spread of disease that way, maybe it also makes sense to distribute these safe smoking kits so that users are not improvising uh, pipes out of plastic bottles or, or, or glass bottles or you know, passing pipes around among themselves that are dirty and you know, maybe 
maybe you get a cut on your mouth from a from a aluminum can pipe and then uh, because it's dirty that that facilitates the transmission of hep C or something like that and so that's that's kind of the thought process behind a couple like I say uh, I think the state of California and then a couple of localities dotted around the country have looped into these harm reduction programs these pipes which is where we get back to our our story because the this federal program was not going to be actually setting up any any new sorts of programs like this it was basically just providing a grant where these programs that already exist could dip in and get some federal money for the services that they were already producing. Yeah. Sorry to sorry to talk your ear off about all that, but I think that kind of gives you the 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 some more context for what all this is about. No, and that's what we want because the detail of that once everybody gets on their ramparts of the two sides of the media debate, you lose all that context and you forget what the actual issue at hand is. So when we come back with Andrew Eager right after this, we're going to get into that detail because the media got on their ramparts for their narratives. And the Biden administration did not handle this real well. We'll get into those details with Andrew Egger of The Dispatch right after this. Hi, welcome back to Heard Tell. We are getting deep into a story that got viral, then went viral for going viral, which is kind of the habit of our media and social media age we live in. Andrew Eager from the dispatch with us. Okay, we talked about the details of this grant, how crack pipe became a loaded term. Let's talk about that media reaction. You talked about how it kind of became a meta story. Uh, We know the media's favorite thing to do is cover itself. That applies to all of us, ourselves included. We're guilty too. That's Um, right. Let's do it right now. Yeah. So how did we cover this? Because it sure seemed like uh, some of the more right-leaning social media really grabbed onto this and took off and ran with it. Uh, and then the more mainstream media almost reactionarily reacted to it. Uh, how was the media response to this thing? Right. Well, obviously, the the if you're a right wing senator, I say right wing senator, a Republican senator, uh, a, a right wing media figure, the the kind of reaction to this story writes itself. It's it's you know Biden's soft on crime, Biden's soft on drug use, Biden is an enabler uh, in terms of federal policy when it comes to uh, you know various drug act drug epidemics going on around the country. Um, and then there are some nastier ways to spend that, which we don't even need to really get into. Um, but for instance, you know, Tucker Carlson uh, making a big stink about uh, the Biden administration sticking up for crackheads, but ignoring the opioids epidemic, which is, there are sillier and less less silly ways to, to talk about this. Let's 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 leave it there. Um, but but then after you have, you know, half a day of, of kind of explosion about that with a lot of, you know, federal lawmakers, weighing in, then you get, uh, like you say, kind of this this reaction. You get uh, a lot of places, uh, the Washington Post, the Daily Beast, getting in touch with HHS, with the same people who had been corresponding with the Free Beacon and doing really damage control. And, uh, and the first wave of that was basically, I mean, it was honestly really just a, just a sloppy uh, set of pieces that came out that were all predicated on the notion that the Free Beacon had been basically lying, or at least had had mistaken its own story, and they were, you know, they, that 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 this whole thing was much ado about nothing. That there was no, you know, uh, there never were going to be any pipes distributed in these in these safe smoking kits, and the safe smoking kits themselves were only, you know, a small part of this grant. And, and basically, you know, just just pieces saying, well, what's the big deal? What are you getting all worked up about it later? And, and uh, uh, part of that was HHS itself trying to kind of walk back uh, its own, you know, its own comments to the Free Beacon, where they basically said, well, we never confirmed there would be pipes in, in any of these kits. We just said that there would be, you know, funding for these safe smoking kits. And in fact, uh, it would have been impossible for us to have funded pipes in these uh, kits because these kits 
we we made plain in the grant have to be compliant with all relevant federal, local, and state laws. Well, that was kind of a weird thing for HHS to say for the reasons we've already talked about, which is that it would be perfectly possible for programs in, in these places that have already kind of got these programs going to apply for such grants because they exist in, in places where there's already been kind of a legal movement over the last few years uh, to, to facilitate this sort of thing. I mean, California, it was 2018 when they, uh, when they explicitly passed a law that, uh, that, that, that broadened the exclusion of their paraphernalia laws to include smoking supplies. So, uh, so California is kind of a, a perfect example of a place where, you know, their own Department of, of, of Health uh, in California endorses the use of these kits, uh, thinks that, you know, it's, it's, to the, it's to the public health, it's to the benefit of, of public health in the state uh, that, that if you're using drugs, at least, uh, at least you're not additionally damaging your health via the paraphernalia that you're using. Um, and, and these are exactly the kind of programs that the grant was plainly in its own language intended to, to facilitate. So that round was really sloppy and, uh, and, 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 and quite bad. Um, they did nail the free beacon on one small technical point, which is that the free beacon reported in its original piece that uh, an HHS spokesman had confirmed that pipes would be in, in the kits. Um, it was so, it was sort of immaterial to the story because HHS was not distributing any kits. You know, the the, the assembly of the kits was was happening at, at all of these, you know, these places that already had these programs, and HHS was just funding them. They did, you know, have, and, and it was basically through that through that crack uh, in in the Free Beacons reporting that HHS tried to run, and that all these these places kind of tried to tried to cover. Um, and then then there was another round of, of media reporting the following day. There was another piece in the Washington Post uh, that that did a much better job of kind of getting at the the actual complexities here. The New York Times had a good piece on the same thing. I had a piece. Uh, it was pretty good in my opinion. <laughs> but I, I, what's what's really interesting to me about this whole kind of media media furor. That, that took place is that, you know, it, it very quickly becomes a conversation about, you know, was the free beacon out over its skis? Did this program ever actually exist? Was the Daily Beast, you know, the, the media transgressor for, for unfairly knocking the free beacon? Um, and, and everybody starts arguing about these things. Uh, meanwhile, the Biden administration, which I guess never really maybe never really expected there to be much of a controversy about this at all. And this is not an uncommon thing either, right? That, that, that you would just have a program that's taking place. Uh, you know, nobody in the white house has necessarily seen it or okayed it. It's just like whoever's putting these, these grant packages together, who are the policy experts at the, at the, at the relevant department. And then it suddenly becomes controversial and, and the, you know, the political administration, the white house runs away from it because, you know, they, maybe in a vacuum, they, it would, they, they would support it as good policy, but they're not going to, you know, they're not going to spend political capital defending this tiny program. So they're going to, they're going to try to defuse the situation. Right. Um, but uh, the, the fact that it, that, that it becomes that conversation, the fact that the white house immediately runs away and says, well, there's not, we're going to exclude pipes from these kits now because of this controversy and kind of tries to pretend that they were all, they were always excluded, even though they were not, that kind of obscures the actual, conversation, which is that, you know, we, we, we haven't really had a, a, a national fight about harm reduction in, in public health. Uh, I mean, wonks care about these things. There are organizations, Harm Reduction International is one, uh, that do a lot of research and, and do a lot of advocacy 
suggesting that it, it actually is to the to the public good that that these these services exist, um, that it actually helps pull people out of addiction. It doesn't uh, con- confirm them in their addictions, at least again again according to these advocates. And they've they've had a certain amount of success, as as we've talked about. I mean, there there have been some states and some cities that have taken their advocacy to heart and have have moved forward with these sorts of programs. And this was kind of the first, uh, at least in my in my knowledge, the first big uh, national fight over. Or I don't know I don't know about fight, but first first time this this sort of thing, at least as as far as pipes are concerned, really entered the national conversation. Uh, but we just we just all spent the whole week kind of just fighting about. At least in the media space, uh, who who had done the good reporting and who had done the bad reporting, um, and it was just sort of, and, and and now it's sort of receding into the rearview mirror with, uh, without anybody really having talked about the actual issue much, which is, you know, should it be the the case that the federal government, um, you know, is is throwing its weight behind uh, behind some of these harm reduction programs in in its in its federal health policy spending? I mean, that's that that's the point of that money, right? Is to is is to go to programs around the country that are that are reducing pushing for these, these better public health outcomes, but is helping users use more safely. Is that a third rail that the federal government shouldn't get involved with because it's illegal and because it's, you know, controversial, uh, because it's an illegal, uh, you know, it's illicit substances and things. Uh, but I think the Biden administration, it, it, it didn't want to, <laughs> to uh, like I said, spend political capital on that particular fight over such a small amount of money to begin with. So I think uh, instead it just, it just became this media story. Yeah. Talking to Andrew eager from uh, the dispatch, uh, our friend, Dr. Keith Humphreys, who is an expert on addiction testifies before the Senate, things like this. He actually made the point that with the government spending $7 million a minute, by the time you read all the tweets about this, the expenditures already passed. My criticism of the Biden administration this year, beyond just politics and ideology stuff is consistently on big issues they are absolutely optic obsessed with anything that gets into the news cycle that is negative to them especially if it's a sensitive cultural type issue like this i think some blame goes on them here because the media is going to be the media social media is what social media is this is a leadership thing of like well what if the even if you're not fully for harm reduction if they would have just stuck to their guns here then you would have gotten that conversation about harm reduction but they did a reaction to the optics again and ended up kind of looking silly. And you probably, if you're an advocate for harm reduction, you probably just set that back and talk about because now everybody's going to reference this. And when they Google search it, this is going to pop up instead of some actual programs that might actually help people. Right. Right. And, and some of these groups, um, the, uh, the drug policy Alliance, I, I believe for one did kind of ding the Biden administration for, for the walk back. And they said, well, we'd been under the impression that the, that this was a grant that was intended to fund these, these safe smoking kits that included pipes. Um, you know, and, and, and we think that's a good thing. You know, we were, we were, you know, uh, the, th- there were various groups lining up to apply for these, apply for these grants. You know, this was not like some, uh, you know, theoretical program that was going to be funded, you know, months down the line, the, the deadline, had come to, to apply for these things. And, and there were groups that were already, that had already sent in applications that were, that were, you know, intending on distributing these kits. Uh, and, and, and exactly what you say is their argument. And it is a strange thing. I mean, it, it you, you do see this tension in the Biden administration a lot where uh, on some things it's very plain that they are, it's a progressive white house. I mean, uh, the, the, the bills that they, the bills that they put out um, on, on issue after issue after issue, uh, I mean, particularly economic stuff, there is there is a certain amount of you know you look at you look at the the human infrastructure bill and you're like well come on I mean like you're 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 uh, you're a progressive Democrat running a progressive Democrat's White House and and you know 
you know, own that. But it, it does seem as though there's there are like certain issues where where Biden still I don't know if it's him or if it's just people in his shop or, or, or who, but uh, still wants to distance himself from from these sort of right wing furors in a way that you would, you know, you might expect uh, a, a very progressive president presidency to just kind of go tell those critics to sit on attack or something, you know, um, we've, we've seen this. I, I mentioned in the piece one one issue where we saw this was refugee resettlement last year where where Biden kind of ran on uh, re-expanding the, the refugee caps that President Trump had, had slashed dramatically during his time in office. And and Biden had had campaigned against that and said that, you know, that's not who we are. But then when he gets back into office, he he drags his feet for months and months um, on that issue, even as, you know, all the, the, there's a lot of conflict uh, melting down around the world. Uh, and and there's a lot of reporting that said that that was, that was primarily optics driven, that, you know, he didn't want to get stuck with uh, you know, right wing critiques of Biden as throwing open the, you know, throwing open the borders uh, since since immigration is a, a significantly motivating uh, right wing issue. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a policy expert in this in this area. I, I, I was getting up to speed with harm reduction, uh, same as everybody else was uh, last week. But but I mean, you know, it makes sense to me. I mean, it's I I I read a harm a harm reduction international uh, policy paper, and I'm like, yeah, actually, that does seem like you know a, a worthwhile public health end, and and it does seem like the Biden administration could have could have done the same. I mean, could have just been like, no, 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 you're 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 overreacting to this 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 minor thing, but let us you know sit you down and explain why these programs are important. And I think probably if it had been a bigger a bigger kind of administration push from the beginning. That's probably what you would have seen, but but it was it was just sort of the the, the nature of the way the the story came out. Where the, I, I'm sure the first that Jen Psaki heard about this program was when it was when it had already been become controversial, and it was like, well, surely we're not doing that, and then like, oh, we are doing that. Well, now we kind of need to back away from that, and it becomes adversarial and um and 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 unfolds the way that we saw it unfold. Yeah, it's a hot mess. Andrew Egger from the Dispatch. Uh, great information on this. You, this is what you do at the Dispatch. You go deeper into the stories. You get good information. That's what we try to do on our program. Let folks know about the Dispatch and what you got going on, and where they can follow you on your social media going forward, my friend. Oh yeah, well thanks. Well, it's uh, it's just the Dispatch dot com. We're uh, we're a center right outlet launched in twenty nineteen. Gosh, twenty nineteen. It was that feels more recently than it was the we've basically been in business for the entire pandemic is it plus plus change um but yeah we're based in dc uh jonah goldberg and steve hayes are fearless leaders um follow me on twitter at egger dc if you feel like it thanks for having me on had a good time yeah come for the uh, in-depth analysis stay for the baby pictures which he is putting out at great regularity and a good clip <laughs> which he should because it's a beautiful baby congratulations my friend and we'll have you back on next time you write something up we appreciate having you Well, thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. Thank you, sir. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Uh, We've talked about the pandemic a lot because it's on a lot of folks' minds and specifically how the government has reacted to it. Uh, It's interesting to note as things reopen, as things like mask mandates end, like our school mask mandate actually ended yesterday, where my children go to school, a lot of other places are dropping it. We saw at the Super Bowl, there weren't a lot of masking going on. When will government open? A lot of government services are still not open to in-person care. Now, this is a big deal for a lot of services like Social Security, like other things. Uh, Elizabeth Nolan Brown, well-known writer, 
uh, recommended you follow her. She covers all sorts of stuff. Great writer. She brings up a thread on Twitter. It said, this thread mentions that Social Security Administration offices remain closed. So a tale. My son was born in October. We still haven't got his Social Security number card. Every time we call, no one answers and there's no office open to go ask about. It's maddening. I can confirm this. Uh, they are closed except for extraordinary circumstances for Social Security. There's some things I have to do with them that are involved. Uh, you have to either find a local number because they're all still working from home or you have to go through the national office, work your way back down, but you can't just go in an office, talk to somebody and get something taken care of. That's not the only government agency like this. Lots of government agencies are like this. And it's a fair question to ask, when are these services going to be enacted? Because it's damaging people's lives. It holds up people's benefits. It holds up services that they need for them. So when are these going to be changed? If we're going to start lifting things through society, you think the government would be on the front foot on it, but we know better. Bureaucracy moves slowly. They will probably be the last people to get folks back to work, get them back to customer service, and get back to the services that our taxpaying dollars fund. One other little side bit of this, um, down at the bottom of the thread, there's an interesting uh, tweet from Robinson Myers. What's closed? Tell me what you think is closed. The U.S. Capitol building is still closed. The U.S. Supreme Court is still closed. The White House is closed. And the U.S. District for the Court of Columbia is all closed. The local Social Security Administration offices are closed. The FAA Civil Aircraft Registry is closed. Certain NOAA, that's uh, National Oceanic uh, Administration, that's uh, weather folks, that's still closed. Some USDA service centers are still closed. All at the local level, some sheriff's departments, senior centers, permitting offices, and clerks remain closed. Places like Salt Lake City, Fair Oaks, California, Arlington, Virginia, and Fulton County, Georgia. Some state agencies, this is Robinson Meyer again, and offices are closed or open by appointment only. That's like Social Security. You can get in there if you have a disability or a pressing need. Uh, Oregon, Massachusetts Debt Management Department, that could be important. Uh, Vermont's Public Utility Commission, Kentucky's Public Utility Commission. Should these places be open? This is Robinson Meyer asking question. That's a separate question. But advocates of stronger health restrictions have mounted an argument that society has basically reopened. That's clearly true of customer faces businessing but broadly society remains in an uneven state of exception. I don't know, but if we can make our grocery workers work through a pandemic, we probably could have figured out a way to keep government offices that apply certain and very important benefits like social security, like disability benefits, like life-sustaining paycheck for folks that are pensioners from the government. Maybe they could have done a little better job keeping their services up, making them more available on a virtual basis, and maybe they should be open by now. We'll talk more Hertel right after this. Oh, welcome back to Hertel. You know, we always try to end on something a little more lighthearted or at least uplifting. This qualifies as somewhat melancholy, but also uplifting. I find it to be a great story. Uh, the Washington Post, this lady, Kimberly Morse, uh, found the old dilapidated wood one-room school that is more than a century old with torn up floors, a precarious roof, and missing windows. It is an unexpected treasure Kimberly Morris found in the woods of Virginia's Caroline County, the result of years of research about her ancestors. Her father attended the school. Quote, this is my family's history, said Morris, a genealogy hobbyist from Richmond who is working on a book about her family going back to the early 1800s when her ancestors were enslaved. Her father, Isaiah Morris, attended the segregated school starting in the 1930s until he was 10 or 11, she said. His classmates were other students who were descendant 
of the enslaved peoples in the Richmond area. My great-grandfather and my great-grandmother were born into slavery. My great-great-grandparents were also slaves, Morse said, who was in her early 30s. It is unclear when the building stopped being used as a schoolhouse and fell in repair, but it has set neglected for years in a wooded area in the community of Don, Virginia, until Morse discovered it. Here, here I was looking for an important piece of my father's past, she said. I couldn't believe that the school he went to as a little boy was still standing. She had wondered for years about it after her dad often reminisced about it before his death in 2017 at the age of 87. I remember him talking about living in the country and walking in the woods to get to school every day and how much fun he had going there with his cousins. I always wondered what it looks like. Her father went on to work in Richmond in the same job for 35 years until he retired, who declined to discuss specifics of his occupation because of her mother's wishes for privacy. In the late 2020s, while Morris was doing research for her book, one of her elderly relatives recalled the name of the rural county road that led to the old Don schoolhouse her father attended, and an older cousin told her the road was not far away, perhaps 20 or so minutes from where Morris lived in Richmond. I set off looking for it, and amazing to find it in just 30 minutes, Miss Morris said. Because of the trees were bare, it was easier to see from the road than it would the rest of the times of the year. She followed a short pathway in the woods, probably the same one her father took, and ended up at a ramshackled school building. It was easy to peek inside because the doors and windows of the school are missing and some of the walls have deteriorated. She said it was new to the schoolhouse because of the road her cousin said. It was just as it was described, and it was the only structure in the area. It was an emotional moment to realize that it was still there after all these years, she said. I picture my dad playing with his cousins and sitting outside to eat his lunch. All that history came home. She did some research to find out who owned the property and got permission from the landowner to begin exploring. She knows nobody knows why the building has been vacant and abandoned for so long. I cried happy tears when I saw that little building in the woods. Um, the piece goes on to explain she has gotten with a preservation society. Uh, they are going to get some grant money. They're going to preserve this schoolhouse, a uh, privately funded organization that does about 10 historic buildings a year is looking to put it on the Endangered Historic Places program, and it's been nominated for that. Uh, there's no word on how they're going to retain this, but a cool little piece of history. Um, I like it. Old Don School at the bottom of the piece, also known as School Number 4, was probably built in the 1910s, about a decade before educator and presidential advisor Booker T. Washington campaigned to improve the quality of education for black children in the South. Uh, Washington worked with philanthropist businessman Julius Rosenwald to build more than 5,000 rural Rosenwald schools across the United States and more than 360 in the Virginia Commonwealth between 1917 and 1932. The old Don School is not a Rosenwald school, but the construction is similar at the time. The public school system was segregated, so a lot of these were just built by folks in the community. Cool piece of history. Uh, you can read it in the Washington Post. Uh, cool story. I like the story. My father went to a one-room schoolhouse. And that building, the Armstrong Road School, actually still stands. It's held in private hands, but is in relatively good shape. Still drive by it. Uh, it's a little modified from when uh, my father went there in the 50s. But a cool piece to think history is not as far away as we ever think it is. So do check that out. Neat piece of history. Uh, it is Black History Month. That's a cool little piece of the history that started out as bad, but is now bringing good memories and a good educational opportunity for other people to remember a time when segregation meant you had to build your own school out in the woods somewhere. That'll do it for her tell today. Uh, appreciate you joining the program. As always, wherever you are listening to this, if you're watching on the YouTube channel, if you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms, please make sure you subscribe. That way you don't miss anything. You will automatically then get 
Herd Tell every weekday morning. You'll get the Good Talks interview segment breakout every afternoon. You'll get the long-form podcast when we do those. You'll have access to all the past shows and past podcasts that we have done. There's quite a few of them now. We have a good backlog building up. Also, a lot of our guests are recurring guests, so if you missed them the first time, you can go back and hear what they said when they were on before. People have asked for that, and it's all there for you. All you got to do is click on it because it's free other than those couple of clicks. Please do share us on your social media. All those platforms have a share button. Let folks know our little program is worth checking out as we continue to try to turn down the noise of the news cycle and get you good information. We think we did that today. Uh, appreciated having Andrew Egger on the program. Retouching on a story that went viral. We touched on it when it happened. We followed up on it now. Good information from him. It's exactly what we like to cover. We'll be back tomorrow with more turning down of the news. We're going to get through the caterwall and get to some stuff that actually matters. And we'd appreciate you joining us again. So till then, we hope wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world are, we hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. And we'll see you tomorrow on Hurt Tell. All the music on Hurt Tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16 ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% lean ground sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca Cola, Pepsi, or 7 Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.